From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. This year has proven to be one of the strongest in memory for SEC basketball, which is good for the league, but means surprises are around every corner. That certainly proved true for the Gators this week, as an upset win at Kentucky was followed by an unexpected loss at home to South Carolina. On today's show, we'll talk hoops with senior point guard Chris Chioza and hear the stories behind some of his legendary moments. Also, we'll review the week in basketball and sift through a treasure trove of football news with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. But first, as he enters the twilight of his college career, the Gators' most important dairy product continues to produce in big moments. The clutch Chris Chioza added an important accomplishment to his ledger last weekend by getting his first win at Rupp Arena, and we began our chat with the Memphis native by asking him how the Gators managed that elusive victory at Kentucky. Uh, I mean, it's a crazy environment, and, uh, you know, Kentucky's always a top team in the country. So, you know, when you go there, it's just a, a totally different atmosphere and just totally different, you know, energy. And you just got to have a whole different mindset when you go in there than you do most places. You just got to find ways to, you know, come up with plays and figure out ways how to close out a game and who's able to do that. The fact it was your first win at Kentucky, I mean, is that something that you were thinking about? Is that something that means a little bit more after the fact? Uh, yeah, I didn't really think about it too much, uh, you know, during the game. That's something I thought about before the game. Uh, you never want to go, you know, finish your career. You know, you haven't beaten a team or, you know, you haven't won in every gym that you played in or something like that. But, I mean, during the game, it wasn't anything I thought about. I just, you know, was out there playing like it was any other game. Just, you know, trying to keep my team encouraged and, uh, you know, let them know that when we had a lead, you know, that they were going to make a run and get the, cut the lead back down or even take the lead. And, and when we were down, I told them we were going to make a run. They were going to start missing shots. And, uh, you know, the game was never going to be over. Even when we was up late, six or eight points with like a minute and a half left, uh, we was on the free throw line. And I told them, I said, we're, we're going to make these free throws and they're come they're going to come down, hit a tough shot. And it's going to be right back to a five point game. So, uh, and they did that. And, you know, the, my team did a good job, you know, listening. Me and Kavarius, uh, who played there before and came on, we just tried to, like, let everybody know how it was going to be. And, uh, you know, the guys did a good job of listening and just keeping their composure down the stretch. You've become known for these big moments, which really started with that Sweet 16 buzzer beater. How often do people still talk to you about that? And what are your memories of that moment? I mean, people still bring it up quite often. But, uh, you know, I, I really don't talk about it that much, uh, like it's in the past. Kind of like the Missouri thing. Uh, once it happened, you know, people talked about it. People talked to me about it today, but uh, I just kind of, you know, laugh at it and just move on and think about, you know, the games ahead and stuff. They're just they're highlights, but it's something that you know I can't just always look back at. We got to move on. So, have you ever tried to to replicate that shot on the practice court? And, and do you think you could do it the same way, even if you tried? Uh, I haven't done it the exact way, but I've had this shoot a couple of like running shots or something at the end of the shot clock or at the end of practice some and I made I made a few of them but uh they didn't you know they didn't feel as good as that one (laughs) (laughs) 
Jalen Hudson said about you the other day that you're so far ahead of everyone else on the court mentally because you're reading body language, you're looking at intentions ahead of time. When did that part of your game really start to develop and how have you honed those skills? Uh, I don't really, you know, remember. I feel like it's something I kind of always had. Um, There's nothing I really think about when I'm in the game. It just kind of happens. We've talked about clutch moments. And again, you mentioned the Missouri one as well. Have you always been kind of a clutch performer? Where do you think that comes from? I would think so. I think I would like to say I would have been. Um, ever since I was little, I always had like a knack for, you know, making a big play. Uh, no matter, you know, what sport I was playing. And I think it's just like confidence more than anything. I know I feel like I can make the shot whenever it needs to be taken. And, uh, it's like I want to be the one to take the shot. But at the same time, you know, I want to be able to get the best shot I can. So if somebody else is open then, uh, you know, I'm going to pass them the ball and I'm not going to be the one to take the shot. It doesn't matter who takes it, but I'm never scared to take it. I know it's in the past, and that's why this is the last question I'm asking about, I promise. But as far as the, the buzzer beater against Missouri, which is the recent one, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you read everything before it happened, like we just talked about, and then you've got the ball and the clock is running down and you've got an open basket. Can you just what's going on in your head at that moment when there's there's a lot going on but only one thing matters and that's you trying to get to the rim to to win the game uh i got the ball in like three and a half seconds something like that and i was already at half court so i knew i could get down there in like a second and a half so i just took my time and got to the right side of the rim to make the easiest shot as i can and take a little bit extra time off the clock and uh tried to make it <laughs> with uh you know tried to put the ball in the basket with a least amount of time possible so they couldn't get a shot off does any part of you worry as it's leaving that, that you didn't beat the buzzer or were you sure you'd beaten it uh no i was sure i beat it i was just worried i left too much time on the clock because <laughs> uh once i jumped i could i couldn't see the clock anymore but i knew i had time to lay it up i just didn't know if i got down there too fast so i wanted to celebrate and i, I was about to and then i realized I, it might be some time left on the clock so i didn't really get i didn't get a celebration off till after the buzzer <laughs> Yeah, we talked about a couple of moments that everybody has seen because they were on national television, but you've talked about kind of this being something you've had your whole life. Can you tell us maybe the, the best clutch cheese moment that no one's ever seen that happened maybe even in, in a different sport when, when you were a kid? Uh, I don't know. In baseball, I had a knack for hitting, you know, like a walk-off home run or, you know, just a walk-off hit, anything like that when I was younger. Uh, basketball, I never, I didn't have many game winners like buzzer beaters, but uh, I remember in middle school, my team was down going into the fourth quarter, and I think I scored like 24 points in the fourth quarter. <laughs> and my team scored like 26. I think I scored 24 out of the 26, and we came back and won by like two. That's pretty clutch. I would say that's <laughs> pretty clutch. Um, looking at your, your overall role on the team, obviously you've taken on a, a more prominent position after being behind Casey for three years. What are some things you took from him that you now find yourself using as the starting point guard? Um, just being behind him for three years and playing with him every day in practice and stuff. Uh, you know, just a lot of the little tricks that uh, you know, that you just learn from older guys, like just things coming off the pick and roll, um, making reads, um, you know, on the defensive end, learning uh, you know, just to be anticipate more. And, uh, you know, use my speed and quickness uh, like he did and just being a, you know, competitive leader in every damn practice. As one of the older guys on the team, you've obviously had the opportunity to impact a lot of the younger ones as well. 
now that you're kind of coming toward the end of your career, I'm curious which players you think that you've had the biggest impact on and why. Probably, I don't know, that's tough. Probably Keystone, Kayvon, uh, Jalen Hudson, and Kavarius. So that that's a lot of guys. I'm curious, what do you think you've given to them? Where have you helped them the most? With uh, Keith and Kayvon, I tried to, you know, get them to talk more because uh, when they got here, uh, I don't think they, they said three words to anybody besides each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not much of a talker either, so uh, I really focused been focusing on getting those guys to talk and now Keith talks all the time and Kayvon he has his days where he won't shut up but <laughs> some days some days he won't talk still so um Jalen uh he's known for being a scorer and uh I think uh me like the way I play I think he's kind of learned to you know make that extra pass and um you know be unselfish because on our team you know the ball gonna find its way back to you when you know how the ball if you make a good play we got guys on this team that are, you know, go make another good play and find a way to get it back to you if you're open. So I think when he first got here, he struggled with that. And uh, just, you know, he's normally on my team in practice. So when uh, I pass him the ball and he shoots a tough shot and we have somebody open, I just tell him, like, you make that extra. And, uh, and then now, now he does it all the time and he still gets the ball back and gets the shot he wants. So I think, I think that's it. Uh, Spidey, Kavarius, um, me and him are kind of like the, I guess, the leaders by default with John mm-hmm. being out. And, you know, we just help each other out every day because, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of guys like to talk on the team. So it's kind of up to us to, you know, get everybody going today for practice and, uh, you know, keep the energy up and uh, try not to take anything for granted. You and Devin were quite the dynamic duo on campus for the last three years, and then he moved on early to the NBA. What's it been like for you without him, and how often are you able to talk to him these days? Uh, I mean, I can talk to him whenever I want, man. Him are like brothers. Uh, we used to see each other every day, go out to eat. You know, we pretty much around each other, you know, 24 hours out of the day for three years straight. So the first, uh, you know, two months, a little weird. I think he felt it a little more than I did because I still had, you know, teammates here, you know, that I'm close with. But uh, he was out there on his own. And uh, you know, I think he felt it a lot more than I did. Uh, but, uh, we, you know, we stay in contact and, you know, we're real close. So, you know, once the, once the season's over, uh, I'm sure that, you know, we'll be somewhere you know, hanging out at the beach or something. <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, you, Igor, and Kayvon are all top five in the SEC in free throws. If we got you guys out in the practice court and had a shootout, who would win a free throw shootout? Uh, that's tough. I don't know. Has it happened yet or no? <laughs> no, nah, we haven't had a, a free throw shootout yet. I don't know. That's a good one. I think it depends on what day of the week it is. Are you, are you putting your money on yourself? Uh, I'll win. I'm putting my money on myself. But <laughs> I, I never bet against myself. We've talked about how clutch you are on the court. Uh, I want to see if we can help people feel better about themselves since you seem to be so good at everything. Uh, tell us an area that you are not clutch in. What, what, are, what is something that you are not good at so people can feel a little bit better about themselves? I can't skate. <laughs> I, got, I got great balance, but I can't, I can't, I can't skate. <laughs> Is it ice skating, roller skating, both of them? Anything, skateboard, skating, roller skating, it doesn't matter. I'm, I never did it when I was younger. So, you know, I try to, every now and then I go to the skating rink and try to learn how to do it. I can I can get around once without falling, but uh, it's, it's really slow. <laughs> You've got such great balance on the court, so I'm, I'm curious why it doesn't translate. I have no idea, honestly. It's just something that I don't think it's meant to be for me. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's the sign to stay away from that before I get hurt. 
you know, getting back to this team and where you guys are in the big picture, there have been some swings this year. You've had those those big ups, and then there have been some tough downs as well. Can you talk about the role that you've played in trying to steer that ship when you're going through the rough patches? Uh, I just try to be the you know the same person. You know, we're up and we're down. Uh, you know, be there for my team, and uh, you know, just you know, try to keep lifting them up, encouraging them. You know, try to keep them focused. You know, when things aren't going good, you know, it's it's always easy to point fingers at so and so, and you know, blame everybody. Uh, you know, except for yourself. But I feel like most of the time when we're we're struggling, I feel like it's when I'm not having a clear mind, or um, you know, I'm not being a good leader, and uh, so. It's just so I try to be the same person every day and try to be even keel as much as possible, which I, I usually am. That's just my personality. But, uh, you know, sometimes I get out of that and I get frustrated, you know, during a game or something. And it just kind of throws me off. And I feel like that's a big part of our struggles when, uh, you know, when I'm not there mentally. As you look back over your career, I don't know how often you do this, probably not often, but if I'm asking that question right now, in what ways do you think you've grown the most as a player and as a person? Um, I would say as a player, just uh, being a, a more, you know, leader vocally. I've always been a leader, a leader by example. Um, but, you know, being a senior and losing main people that were our leaders and Devin, you know, he was probably the most talented person you had. Uh, it was just a, a lot more put on my shoulders as far as being vocal. And, uh, you know, Kavaris has done a good job of helping me out. He, he's probably more vocal than I am, honestly. Um, I still, you know, try to talk as much as I can, but it's just something I'm not comfortable with. Uh, Tavares does a good job, you know, yelling at people and, you know, always talking. But uh, as a person, I would say just uh, probably just as I got older, just knowing, you know, nothing's in the promise tomorrow. Just, you know, go out there and give it your all and just just be a, a great person on and off the court. You know, not just sports, nothing's promised. And, you know, you could lose a family member or anything, something crazy could happen you know, while you're in practice and, you know, just don't want to ever have any regrets. You don't want to ever, you know, you know, be a bad person towards anybody. Talking about the past inevitably leads to the future. So I'm curious how often you let yourself think about what's next and what's to come for you after the season is over. Uh, you know, I try not to think about it. I mean, I have people ask me, um, do, you, do I think I'm going to get drafted and all that? And uh, I just tell them, I don't know, you know, not really worried about it. I'll let that happen when the time comes, but I'm just, you know, trying to be the best, you know, teammate, best player I could be right now. And uh, whatever happens, happens. But, you know, I know at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to be, you know, happy with, uh, you know, whatever happens as long as I'm out there. And I'm just trying to win every game and just be there for my teammates. Well, Chris, we thank you so much for your time. Wish you a lot of luck the rest of the season. Thank you. Defense has been a recurring theme of our conversations with Kristen Scott throughout basketball season, and it proved to be the difference maker in both games this past week. So before getting into some important football news that came out in the last week, we began our chat with Kristen Scott by getting Chris's take on what went wrong against the Gamecocks. Uh, really, they knocked him in the face a little bit. Uh, that's what South Carolina does. That's what South Carolina did uh, last year up, up in Columbia. Um, that's what South Carolina did uh, in, in March in the Elite Eight in Madison Square Garden. That's their brand of basketball. That's what they do. That's, uh, and that's, that's not something that, that the Gators weren't familiar with. Granted, there wasn't a lot in common with the two teams that played Wednesday and the two teams that played last year in the, uh, in the Elite Eight in the East Regional Final. 
but the calling card for Frank Martin's teams are hard nose, toughness, physicality. And if you're going to have success against them, Adam, you have to match that. You have to embrace it and you certainly have to be ready for it. And, you know, Florida just looked like it wasn't ready for a backyard brawl. I think the coaching staff made those points uh, to the guys afterward. And they probably will talk about that in the in the coming days as they try to prepare for the rest of the season. They got a tough matchup uh, Saturday against the team from Baylor that's big and long and that should be a tough challenge for him at home. But it was one thing that the physicality in the post of a guy like Chris Silva, who had 18 points and 12 rebounds, got to the line nine times, made eight shots or Florida just played atrociously on the defensive side on the perimeter. They let guys get open for three point shots, some late clock shots that were just felt like daggers at the time. Wesley Myers came in. He was averaging seven points a game. He hung 22 on him. He's eight of 15 from the floor, five of seven from three. He made seven threes in SEC playoff season. He almost matched that. Uh, South Carolina came in averaging six three-pointers a game in conference play. They had seven at halftime. So you give them that kind of confidence out of the box. They made threes their first two times down the floor. You know, they start to feel that they can play with anybody. And now you roll in the added um, edge that they have where we know we're tougher than you are just because that's been the kind of the calling card for Florida this year. Florida State came in here and hit him in the mouth. Even Loyola Chicago came in here and hit him in the mouth a little bit. And Florida was on their heels in both those games, and they certainly were on their heels uh, Wednesday against South Carolina. You talked about some of the defensive issues, and obviously defending the three has been a season-long story, especially in the SEC where, where Florida ranks last in that department. Can you identify why this has been such a big problem, and in what ways can they improve that at this point? It would be nice if they all grew about three or four inches. Um, <laughs> last year, they were very good at guarding the three-point line. But you had Casey Hill out on the perimeter, a long you know, 6'2 six, six guard. You had uh, uh, Devin Robinson out there. You had Justin Leon out there. Uh, Kanye Berry, 6'6". Six, six. You, you had guys. They were just a better team and better out there on the perimeter. Now now you have a smaller team because of all the uh, issues with, with injuries in the front court. They have to play small. And teams are going to get better looks out there. And, and that's part of it. The other part of it is just lack of focus, lack of attention to detail is something that Mike White talked about uh, Thursday morning and, and kind of processing this whole thing. It's something Jalen Hudson talked about and Igor Kolachov talked about after the game. They knew what they were supposed to do game plan wise. But uh, you're right. This is an ongoing uh, thing. Florida's given up 37 percent from three going into the game. That's just those are big, big baskets. Those are big, big numbers. I think there are 296 nationally in defending the three-point line. Those numbers have to improve whether or not they have the manpower to do it over the course of the season. Who knows? But certainly uh, South Carolina was, came in. They weren't a very good three-point shooting team, I think 11th in the league. And uh, they were 11 for 21 from the three-point line, 54%. Just a just a bad night for the Gators defensively. At this point, we're thinking about what happened in South Carolina because it was the most recent game. But Florida did beat Kentucky at, at Rupp Arena on Saturday night, which is not insignificant. So can you touch on why that's such a big deal and just some historical context for that? Sure, I can touch on it. Uh, how about the 10th time in school history? The uh, Gators have gone to Lexington and won in 62 tries. Uh, that's significant. How about uh, previously John Calpari in nine seasons that lost just six games at home? Florida now has two of those uh, seven wins there. Um, having said that, you know, you leave Lexington kind of thumping your chest a little bit. And even Mike White told the guys afterwards, this is a great win. Let's celebrate it. But it's just one of seven games that they had played to date in the SEC. Maybe some of there was some carryover uh, into this game where they were feeling pretty good about themselves and to the detriment of uh, playing a, a South Carolina team. But 
I think historically, if you go back and obviously the maybe call the Elias Sports Bureau to figure this one out. I think historically, if you go back and look, if a team beats Kentucky, especially at Rupp Arena, I bet they don't play well the next game just because uh, you have that feel good mojo kind of going for you. And I think you're primed to get wrapped in the mouth a little bit. And that's exactly what happened to Florida this week. Some of the ingredients that got that win at Rupp, though, what are those that worked that Florida needs to roll out more consistently? Well, defense, 50-50 balls, hustle. And uh, I was sitting in a coach's office uh, Thursday morning going over some stuff. It was when Wesley Myers hit like about a 30-foot three-point shot at the end of shot clock. The ball was tapped out, and if Kayvon Allen dives for the ball and just tips it, it probably ends up being a 30-second shot clock violation. The lead was, uh, I think, uh, six at the time, maybe seven. And uh, instead, Myers gathers the ball and hits a desperation three to cut the lead to whatever it was, a one-possession game, three-point lead or whatever. It's just that kind of stuff. I mean, Florida made the 50-50 plays and played great defense at Rupp Arena and shot the ball horribly, 20% from three. I think there were the numbers, I think, was five for 30, six for 30, whatever 20% is. They come home and they shoot equally bad, 23% from three, and they don't play the defense to overcome it. So, uh, again, some of that may have been just circumstance and that feel-good kind of thing I was talking about. But uh, the team's capable. It's it's never going to be a great defensive team because they just don't have the manpower up front and the size up front. But they're certainly capable, and they do have to play over their heads defensively to be the kind of team that Mike White wants them to be. And they've shown they're not capable of doing that uh, night in and night out. They're also shown that they're not capable of playing great at home yet. They played better against Arkansas last week, Mississippi State the game before that. But, you know, you got to defend home court in this league. They started the night with a half game lead at first place in SEC over Auburn. And they blew that. Now they're in second place because Auburn went to Missouri and absolutely destroyed the Tigers up there. So uh, going into the weekend, going into the SEC Big 12 Challenge weekend, Auburn has a half-game lead. They're one of four teams that won't be playing in the Big 12 Challenge. So uh, by the end of the weekend, that could be a full-game lead. But Florida's not in terrible shape, Adam. They're uh, not quite halfway into the season. They're in second place in the SEC. And they certainly have you know plenty to play for going forward and all that. But uh, maybe this will be a lesson on prosperity. Uh, it needs to be a lesson on adversity as well. When you mentioned the Big 12 SEC Challenge, that's this weekend. Last chance for Florida to play outside the conference until the NCAA tournament. So can you talk about the expectations for this matchup with Baylor and what Florida is hoping to see? Well, it's the first SEC uh, Big 12 game of the day. It'll start at noon. The game's been sold out for, I think, six weeks, something like that. So the the atmosphere will be fantastic, you would think. But I would imagine if I'm Baylor and they got, I get, they got enormous size now, they got to feel pretty good about coming in and with the idea of what they could do maybe, you know, in posting the ball and what have you. So, uh, you know, Florida's going to have to reset itself, going to have to make, you know, recommit to some things defensively. Um, but they, I think this will be the fifth uh, SEC Big 12 challenge. They're three and one of those games. They went on the road last year and won at Oklahoma. They won uh, two years ago in a great game here against West Virginia, a very, very good, I think ninth ranked West Virginia at the time. So they fared well in these games, but obviously those games have nothing to do with this one. This is an entirely different team, and uh, Florida's going to have to shoot the ball a lot better, and they're going to have to shoot against length, and uh, they're going to have to bring a little more uh, on the defensive end to cope with um, Baylor's uh, uh, size on that side. Let's talk some football. It was a, a big week in football news, starting with some resolution to the saga of the nine suspended players 
from last year. And, and Scott, this has sort of worked its way out over time. We heard, you know, one player was leaving school. Obviously, a few guys left to go pro. Uh, and now we find out that some will be returning. So can you tell us about the resolution of this ongoing season-long story? Yeah, you know, of those nine uh, players, four have been reinstated this week uh, to rejoin team. And uh, the headliner, Adam, is Jordan Scarlett. Uh, you know, this was a guy that going into last year was, you know, projected as a starting tailback. Then he was suspended for the uh, season opener against Michigan, and we saw it play out over the rest of the season. Uh, so getting him back is uh, the, the only guy who uh, of the four who has played in a game for Florida. But it is a significant return for Scarlett because he's a good player. And, uh, you know, there's a offense in the uh, – motion here with the new system in place so we don't know how he'll fit in there he'll have to start over and earn his spot within Dan Mullen's offense but there's no question that Jordan Scarlett provides some talent two of the other guys a pair of true freshman linebackers Ventrell Miller and James Houston and then of course receiver Rick Wells uh those three also are returning um again they're young players uh we haven't seen them in action yet so we don't know what their futures are as far as on the field, but they are going to have an opportunity to play at Florida a second chance. I think more than anything, Adam, that's what I took out of this. I mean, this is a second chance for these four guys. Uh, there's a new coach here, uh, new position coaches, obviously a new aura around the program that had a tough season last year, four and seven. And the way I wrote it the other day, to me, the nine guys who got suspended at the start of the year, they, they kind of served as a symbolic asterisk for the season because you know, whenever you think back at 2017, four and seven, Jim McElwain uh, moving on, Dan Mullen coming in, people are going to remember the nine players who got suspended. So uh, now it's a chance for four of those guys to kind of you know, change the uh, course uh, of their personal history some. There was a time here on Gator Tales where week after week, mostly in December, we had new coaches to announce, and we thought that was done because the coaching staff was completed a couple weeks ago, but now uh, an unexpected change. Jawan Sider leaves and then almost immediately is replaced by Larry Scott as the new tight ends coach. Uh, what do we know about Larry Scott and uh, the latest completed Florida coaching staff? One thing we've learned about Dan Mullen, Adam, is that he does not waste time. Uh, <laughs> one coach leaves. Another one comes in. He's put together his staff pretty quickly. And like you said, we thought it was done. But then uh, Jawan Sider, who, you know, he coached running backs here last year. Uh, once the uh, Mullen officially uh, kind of put together his staff, Sider was uh, a tight ends coach. Uh, so he took a job at Penn State as running backs coach. And now Mullen goes out and hires Larry Scott. And, you know, if you pay close attention to college football in the state of Florida, you're probably familiar with Larry Scott because he spent most of his early career at USF where he was an offensive lineman in the late 90s, served as a high school coach around Tampa for a few years, got a job at USF and worked his way up, uh, ended up being at Miami uh, under Al Golden when Al Golden was canned down there. He took over his interim coach uh and I think he led him to a four and two record at the end of that year, kind of revived him for a, a brief period. But then he went to Tennessee and uh, again stepped in briefly after Bush Jones uh, departed at uh, the ball. So this is a guy who has deep recruiting ties in the state of Florida, who uh, has been a coordinator, uh, been an interim head coach. And more than anything else, I think, you know, he's a good position coach too. And Dan Mullen said in, or in the release that he sent out when uh, Scott was hired that uh, the tight end position is as important as any position in their offense on the team. So uh, 
you know, Larry Scott has that unit, and they're going to count on him also to uh, get some talent around the state. He was born and raised in Sebring, Florida. So, again, he's very familiar with the high school coaches and the recruiting landscape in the in the state of Florida. Yeah, we, we try to make sure we turn our attention sometimes to cool stories that are off the field, especially good stories about players and athletes off the field. Uh, and this is one that's interesting, Scott. This is about Eddie Pinedo, who has left Florida to go to the NFL, but obviously became a folk hero in Gainesville. And usually when you hear stories about football players and the police, it's not good. But this is a situation where it's actually a really, really cool story about someone stepping up and helping out someone in need. Yeah, it's one that really uh, was quite uh, under the radar until recently uh, when Eddie Pinedo tweeted out a picture of a certificate from the uh, Gainesville Police Department for uh, something actually he, him and his dad did back in October, the night of the uh, Texas A&M game here in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Uh, afterward, Eddie and his father, Eddie Pinedo Sr., you know, they go back to Eddie's apartment here. Uh, start to go to bed and then early morning hours Eddie uh, hears you know a woman screaming outside and obviously they look down into the courtyard and uh, see this man attacking this woman so uh, Eddie and his father run down and uh, you know try to help out I guess according to him and the the report that the Gainesville Police Department put uh, together in honoring him the man was choking this woman she broke free she took off running. The assailant went after her. Uh, basically, Eddie caught up to him again, and the woman was able to escape into a car with, that passed by with some other girls. And I guess him and his dad were, were able to uh, detain the uh, the uh, man who was beating her up until the police got there. So uh, it was a good story. You know, Eddie Pinedo, if you, if you followed the Gators for the last couple of years, you're aware of how well-liked he was. He became kind of a folk hero for uh, all those long kicks and just really being kind of a funny guy on social media and very interactive with the fans. And uh, obviously they chanted his name at the Swamp. So this just another uh, example of a guy doing the right thing off the field. Uh, as you said, a lot of times uh, we hear about the opposite and we just talked about some guys who made bad choices last year that cost them it's always good to see a guy make the right choice and, uh, and get rewarded for it. Wrapping up today with our PAT, uh, I want to talk about the issue of tanking in sports. This has been brought back to light this week by Scott Boris, the baseball super agent, who is speaking out against teams that are, well, A, he's mad they're not signing his clients, but he says the reason they're not signing a lot of his clients is because they are trying to lose in the short term so they get better draft picks to stockpile their farm systems, get more allocation money to then spend on those players to sign them, so on and so forth. And he's saying this is hurting the integrity of the game, that Major League Baseball is allowing teams to lose short term for long term gains. We also know this is a big problem in the NBA. It has been for years, people tanking to try and get better lottery picks. So I guess my question for you guys is, is this a problem that needs fixing, and how can it be fixed? I don't know how you directly or instantly impact your a Major League Baseball team by tanking. I can see the argument with what's going on in Miami, the fire sale going on. It seems like that, it happens all the time down in Miami, right? They, yeah, it's an annual right of passage yeah. down there. <laughs> I mean, they've just unloaded like some great players, and in doing so certainly made, a, made the Yankees a, a – a lot better team than they were a year ago. But um, the Cleveland Browns have been accused of tanking 
for how many years? They're, not, they're, they're eternally tanking, I would think. Well, they're right? very good at it, from what I can tell. <laughs> I'm not sure it's helped, it's helped them a whole lot. No. Uh, what are they, won one game in the last two seasons now, I think, right? Yeah, one, mm-hmm. two. one game in the last two seasons. Uh, the, the, obviously, the poster child for the tanking is the embrace the process, Philadelphia 76ers, and that's you know come, seems finally to be coming around for them. But, uh, uh, you know, if I'm a fan, I would certainly be frustrated by something like that. Like I said before, I don't know the direct results that you see for baseball. I mean, the Marlins weren't that good to begin with, but uh, they were certainly attractive if you're talking about going to see uh, John Carlos Stanton play. Again, it's, it's not my money. Uh, so I guess, you know, teams are allowed to do that, but I don't really see the instant impact of doing it in baseball. You can talk about it down the line, but it doesn't help your team instantly or certainly, uh, anywhere in the, in the near future, because it takes so long for even great prospects to work their way up through the minors. I don't see, you see, you see any, uh, any impact from it for a couple seasons. And my take on this, Adam, is first of all, I mean, Scott Boris, who one of the, the super agents in baseball history, obviously this is some you know, posturing on his part, I'm assuming that he has some clients out there who's av- available and probably haven't been signed, and he's trying to uh, do what he does for his clients, get them a-, a job. At the same time, if I'm on the baseball side of this, I think maybe what's happened here, and I don't, you know, you guys can chime in if I'm off here, but I look at the two biggest contracts in the last few years in baseball history in terms of length and money is A-Rod and Albert Pujols, both tremendous players in their prime, but both the length of those contracts were overpaid. The guys are, you know, in their 30s, there's no reason to give a guy a 10-year contract. Even, you know, you're going to get four or five years out of him, but the chances of getting eight, nine, ten really good years, it's past. I think maybe there's a movement in baseball to go away from those veteran signings and just have a constant stockpile of really young talent. So that you're going to see, if that's the case, you're going to see careers coming to an end earlier because who wants to pay these guys all this money at the height of their stardom and get burned in the end? So I, I don't know if that's some of what's going on, but uh, the, the whole concept of tanking in sports, you know, you never want to see it, but it's always been hard to prove uh, in terms of on the financial side. It's a lot easier to see when, <laughs> you know, a guy is a, uh, just not trying or something on the court. But in Scott Boris's case, with a lot of money at stake, that's probably what's at the heart of his uh, argument. But at the same time, again, it's hard to prove. Again, it's, it's like the definition of obscenity. I can't prove it, but I know I want to see it, right? <laughs> very true. Very true. Luckily, you guys can never be accused of tanking, which is why people need to check out all of your content on FloridaGators.com and find them on Twitter at GatorsScott at GatorsChris. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Adam, thoroughly enjoyed it today. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Catch the Gators in the SEC Big 12 Challenge on Saturday at noon on ESPN and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back here for a new episode next Thursday. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Exact Tech Arena. <laughs>